Oh, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Um, I copied my daughter right there. I don't even know it. That's her. She says, good morning, good morning. And I just did it to you guys. <laughs> good morning, good morning. The rise and shine. Um, we're in the book of First Thessalonians. Before we do that, though, I wanted to uh, mention something. I've got a few questions and a few emails about it, but I also um, help with another ministry called the Regeneration Project. You can go find out more about it, regenerationproject.org. But we do events, and I also co-host a podcast, so a few people have been asking about it. So um, we do theology and apologetics for young people, but, it, but particularly for people in a postmodern culture, which we're all part of in one way or another. So if you're interested in that, the podcast, the webpage, the events, all of that's on, just Google Regeneration Project, or if the podcast is Regeneration Podcast, and you could look it up. One thing I, I do want to mention, because it's super cool, and it's free, and it's so free, it now no longer appears on the screen. Just disappeared. <laughs> It was one of those like, buy now before it's too late. What I think occurred is that you were on my last slide instead of the first slide, but they're the same picture, so it ended the slideshow, uh, I think. If it's a bigger problem than that, we're in trouble. But um, March 21st, you can find the details out about it later, but um, we're hosting an evening with Oz Guinness. If you don't know the name Oz Guinness, uh, brilliant author, tons of books, won tons of awards. He's one of the world's like leading Christian social critics and social commentators and philosophers. So it's a free event. There it is. Uh, in San Jose, it's, it's going to be small. We're going to keep it small, probably cap it like at 200 people. Um, it'll be an intimate environment, uh, and there'll be time for Q&A. I'll host a Q&A with him after. So whenever there's something free, I, I just, probably worth, worth mentioning. It's cool. Cool. He's... Um, from the UK, so this is a rare kind of opportunity. But if you're interested in any of that, just Google Regeneration Project or, or my name and it will uh, come up. So, First uh, Thessalonians. First Thessalonians is a letter, sometimes called an epistle, but it's essentially a first century letter that a leader in the early church by the name of Paul the Apostle writes to Christians in a city called Thessalonica where they are facing persecution. Now, uh, we have a small small portion of text today, and so what I'd like to do is kind of step back from it and kind of look at some things that are arising in the first two chapters so far of Thessalonians. And what I'd like to do is look at an image of Paul the Apostle that's beginning to emerge, and it's an image of a man who is driven passionately to focus on evangelism, apologetics and the spread of the gospel. I mean, this if you've been here for the past few weeks, every week has talked about Paul proclaiming the gospel in a context where persecution is arising. And as we look at this, there's sort of this composite image of Paul's evangelism method that begins to emerge. And there's, there's gonna be three components that we're gonna look at that kind of shape out, round out, flesh out Paul's way of evangelizing. And what's very important to note is that the first century Roman world is a lot like ours. In the first century Roman world, you could believe in any God that you want, however way you want. You just couldn't make an exclusive claim that your God was the one true God. It's much like our world. You can, no one cares if you're a Christian. No one cares if you have like a private spirituality or you're religious. What they care about and where the rub is, where the tension is, is the Christian claim that Jesus is Lord and no one else is. And so Paul evangelizes in a culture that's much like ours. What I mean by evangelism is simply Paul talks about Jesus. He spreads the good news of the work and person of Jesus. But he's doing that in a context that is much like ours. And there's three components 
that arise in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, particularly where we've been chapters 1 and 2, about the means, method, and mechanism of Paul's evangelism. So the first one is, is like the worst one that no one's going to want to do. It has to do with suffering. And if you've been here, you know Paul has suffered a lot. But his suffering is intricately bound up with his evangelism and his presentation of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now, this is the suffering part. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now, an explanatory note before we get on this idea of evangelism. There's this phrase right at the top where it says, uh, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. I said this two weeks ago, but because of the kind of cultural climate we live in, intentions are so high, there's a note and, and a distinction that we have to make. Oftentimes, people who have racist motivations or anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish motivations will find verses like this and say, look, it, Christianity wants you to, to hate Jews. They're, they're the Christ killers, etc." What you have to understand is that Christianity in the first century world at this point is all Jewish. It's Jews debating Jews. So when Paul says there's the Jews who killed Jesus, he is not saying Jews as a whole, as an ethnic people group. He's talking specifically about the Jews who killed Jesus because Paul the apostle is Jewish. All the first apostles were Jewish and all the first Christians worshiped a Jewish man who was crucified on a Roman cross. So it's impossible to be Christian and anti-Semitic and racist against Jewish people. It's impossible. However, verses like this are what people with bad motivations grab onto. So just that clarifying note. Now, Paul says, you've suffered just like we have suffered, just like Jesus has suffered. And the way the Thessalonians, the Christians in Thessalonica are suffering is somehow giving witness and testimony to the message and power of Jesus. How you deal with your suffering matters. There is a way in which your suffering can be used to point people to the cross of Christ. Paul the Apostle is intimately aware with suffering. And he talks a lot about learning how to suffer well. And this is the first component of that triangle, if you will. If there's three components, one component of Paul's method of evangelism has to deal with suffering. Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 2.2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul tells the Thessalonians, you know that I've suffered in my bold declaration of the gospel. So what's the, the suffering that Paul is talking about in this one particular instance? Because the dude gets beat up and tortured like all the time. But what's he referencing at least in this case? Because we can get a glimpse of how the gospel is bound up with his suffering. Sam talked about this last week. 
So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but it's worth reviewing. Paul, after he's done preaching the gospel in a place called Philippi, this is what occurs. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, Paul and his associates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, there's, there's three things to take note of here. Three, three things. Paul is stripped naked, then he's beaten with rods, and then thrown into like the inner prison in, in the stocks. Now briefly, um, to be stripped naked for a first century Jewish man in public is absolutely shaming. This is a, a shameful deed. In the first century kind of context, some people, and there's re- re- instances of this in history, when people have faced that humiliation, they kill themselves. Because when you're stripped naked, you're not only bringing shame to yourself, you're bringing shame to you, your father, your family, and your people. That's hard for us to understand because Americans, we don't understand a shame and honor culture. Many uh, Eastern cultures have a shame and honor-based system, many other cultures around the world, but America is certainly not a shame-honor type of culture, right? Like Americans, like you do something shameful and you just hear like someone say, I don't care, you know, I I, I do what I want, I have no shame. And it's like, what? You should be shame, like shame on you. You should, you should feel shameful for the way you're acting. This is, this is, this is bad, but we're, we're, that, that world is foreign to us. But you have to understand, people would kill themselves for this type of shame. And Paul, because of the, the gospel, is stripped naked and shamed in this way, humiliated. Then he's beaten with rods. Now, we're not talking like a little type of discipline. You know, some of you grew up in environments, you know, you know where you remember, like you go, oh, I man, I was, I remember being, being with rods. I remember the switch. We had to go, to go pick it up. Or like, you remember getting the sandal thrown at you, you know? Or, or, or if you're Hispanic, you remember the chancla coming at you. You know what I'm talking about? And the, 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 the that thing was like, heat, it's a heat-seeking missile. It detected things. The, Okay, so some of you are, have no idea what I'm talking about, and some of you, if, if, if you're Hispanic or you had a, a grandma or somebody or an aunt or an uncle, you knew that like, like ab- abuela can throw a chancla, and it had, it, it had powers of its own. Uh, I mean, you could be hiding around the corner, and that thing would turn midair, boom, it'd get you. So some of you, you know, you, you know, you're going back and you're like, okay, what's being beaten with rods? It's not that bad. No, getting beaten with rods in this sense is meant to break a man. It's, 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 make to, it's made to make a grown man cry and beg for mercy. It's torture. And so they humiliate them. They strip them naked. They beat them with rods trying to break them. And then they throw them, it says specifically, into the inner prison. We know from the archaeological evidence, the inner prison most likely is the, like the bottom basement type of thing. Complete, I mean, rodents, it, sanitation is, is out the window. If you have open wounds, they're gonna get infected. This is a horrible, dark, miserable place to be. And then they throw him in the stocks. 
Now the stocks, for the most part, in the Roman world weren't just like mere shackles. They're another means of torture. They, they, put, they force your body in an uncomfortable position, and they keep you locked there so your muscles begin to cramp up. Now some of you know if you ever had like an injury, sometimes there's injuries where it's like there's pain everywhere until you fit like in the one spot. You know, you move right on the, you go, oh, if I don't move, it doesn't hurt. Right? He just got beaten with rods, and now he's thrown in this uncomfortable, torturous position. And if you remember, if you were here last week for Sam's sermon, after they're humiliated, tortured, beaten with rods, and put in the stocks to suffer in the innermost part of the prison, what do Paul and his friends do? They sing songs to Jesus as king in a world that says Caesar is king. It's like, when you read it, you're like, are you kidding me? You know, I made fun of first service today because, you know, it was, it was slow moving at the first because you guys, I mean, you're second service, so you woke up and the, the sun had started to warm, more, warm the earth's surface still. But for first service, man, it was still pretty cold. And, I, you know, I was making, I was joking around going like, you know, there's some of you, and I'm not trying to do this to shame you, shame on you. Um, like, but it did honestly cross your head like, oh, dude, it's too cold to go to church. <laughs> By the way, in California where it's, what was it? What was, what was the coldest it was this morning probably? Some of you like, some of you, someone's from Buffalo here and they're like, it's the summer still. It's like. <laughs> but I mean, that, that takes some backbone, right? To sing to Jesus after that. Now, what is the outcome of their suffering in this story? The jailer who just put the guys in the stocks, in the torturous position, when the story's done, he's about to kill himself, and Paul and his friends preach to him the gospel, and he becomes a Christian. And then he takes Paul and his friends back to the, to the house, where his whole family becomes Christians, and they all go get baptized together. Paul suffers in such a way that says, my present sufferings will point to the glory and the goodness of God despite my circumstance. When you are suffering well, you have to know you never look more like Jesus than when you're suffering righteously. And I would argue for the most part, you're never closer to Jesus than when you're suffering righteously. Now, we're not obviously suffering for persecution, um, in a persecution context, I mean, that, that could happen down the road, certainly, but most of us suffer in different ways in this room. Um, and so whatever your current circumstance is, the pain you have, I'm not saying you need to be like a super Christian and in your darkest hour start singing hymns, although that may help. Um, there is a way in which you can suffer and suffer well and still point people to the goodness of God. And one of the most powerful testimonies, one of the most powerful witnesses you could ever be is when you take your suffering and still point to Jesus in the midst of that. And this is what the early church did. When the early church was persecuted, as they're being fed to lions, they still proclaimed Jesus. And their passion and power was contagious. Clement writing, 
um, in the first couple hundred years of Christianity, says many martyrs are daily burned, crucified, and beheaded before our eyes. Now, Clement is a leader in the early church. It's after the, the Bible's written, so this, this book isn't in the Bible, but it's a historical record. And Clement, um, there's two opposite errors people make with early, early church history. Some people think that, well, like within the first century of Christianity, the entire Roman Empire is persecuting Christians, and it's just like illegal to be a Christian everywhere. And that's not the case. In the, first, in the first couple centuries of Christian history, the persecutions are always localized, and they're short. There's a duration. So what I mean by that is like, you have persecution in Thessalonica, and it lasts for 30 days or 20 days. Um, or you have persecution in Philippi that happens in a 48-hour period, or a month here. But you don't have this kind of empire, Roman empire-wide persecution in the first 150, 200 years of Christianity. It's localized. But even in that localized persecution, Clement and the historical records tell us that they could still make the claim that many martyrs are daily burned, crucified and beheaded before our eyes. When the Christians suffered like this and said Jesus is greater than our present condition, the world watched in awe. What's up with these people? What do they have? Now a kind of empire-wide persecution would break out in the year 303 AD, the month of February specific day 23rd, the historical records are quite clear. Diocletian is the emperor of Rome at the time, and he claims to be a living God on earth, the king of kings and lord of lords, and he's convinced that in order to save kind of Rome, he has to make sure all the citizens of Rome return to the, to the gods of old, the pagan gods of old. Too many people are becoming Christian and believing other religious systems, and so if Rome is going to survive, we have to return the empire back to the old kind of polytheistic pagan ways. And so he sends out four empire-wide edicts. Here's the four. The first edict called for the destruction of churches and scripture texts throughout the Roman Empire and banned meetings for worship. In other words, you could be killed for going to church or being caught with scripture. Now remember that kind of way I was poking fun at first service? But if we're honest with ourselves, there's been times where we've had this much of an excuse, right? Okay. Eh, too cold to go to church today. And it's not about coming to church. It's not about coming to like South Valley Community Church. I don't care about that. What I'm talking about is the need to come together as the body of Christ and worship your king, to lift the name of Jesus up in your life, to read his scripture, to study it together, to take communion together. This was so essential to the first Christians that they were willing to risk life and limb to go to church or to hide a scripture because he banned scripture. People were hiding portions of the Bible and risking their life. The second edict called for the imprisonment of all the clergy. So we're gonna, we're gonna lock up all the pastors. So I'm gone, I'm done. But I already got a plan for this one anyway. Because when they come, you know, they come here, hey, where's the, where's the pastor? I'm gonna say, bro, we got a multi-site model here. Let me introduce you to the campus pastor, Greg Quirk. He's right over here. You know, in fact, he's got like this, this like gift card. He's over at Westside Grill. Get, get acquainted, you're a visitor. Here's his home phone. For real, dude, do I look like a pastor? For real, be honest. Come on. 
Greg. Here's Sam Whitaker, Kevin Kerr's name. I'll give you all their names, man. They came for the, the, the pastors. Now, the, the next one is strategic. The third edict allowed the release of the clergy on the condition that they sacrifice to the gods. So your pastors are locked up, and it's not hurting the church. In fact, it's giving power to the witness of the church. Okay, well, how about we make the leaders of the church crumble and actually worship our gods upon threat of torture and death? Now, let's say you're a, a pastor, and you've got young kids. And in this culture, if dad's not there to help provide for them, you have to completely rely on the mercy of God and the mercy of other Christians who are also being persecuted. But you don't know. You can't check the internet to see if your wife and kids are doing okay. Maybe they're locked up. Maybe they're getting persecuted. Hey, pastor, go burn this incense to Caesar as God. Do you do it? You feel that? I mean, that, that's weighty. The last edict um, expanded the requirement of sacrifice to the gods for all Christians, not just the, the clergy or the religious kind of professional elite. You know, what, what do you do? Well, there were some people in the early church who obviously caved, but the witness of the early church tells us that men, women, and children passionately endured much suffering. And they would say that we endure suffering because our God has suffered alongside of us. We're not alone in this. And Jesus himself suffered on the Roman torture device, the worst of the worst. And so how does this story end? Well, it ends with Diocletian dead, like every other tyrant, king, Caesar, and would-be leader who seeks to crush out and stamp out the people of God. It ends with Diocletian dead and the church flourishing and more people coming to know the risen Lord Jesus through the suffering of these people. There's this folktale that kind of comes down, and even if it's not exactly historically accurate, the sentiment is historically accurate. But basically, because Diocletian, the emperor, banned scripture, there was a saying that was like, you know, all the scripture has been wiped out. Like, everyone's handed over their, 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 their scripture text. No one's going to be able to, to rediscover the Bible. After Diocletian died, um, the next, next guy in charge ordered, say, hey, we want to know, did any of the scriptures survive? And thousands came forward. Thousands came forward. Men, women, and children, they, they, they preserved it, they kept it. And this suffering gives powerful testimony to the gospel. Now, many of you aren't in a state with pain or suffering, and I don't want that upon anybody, but for those of you who are, whether it's a difficult time um, because of health, because of cancer, because of a difficulty with a child, how you suffer matters. And when Christians suffer well and they suffer differently than other people in the world, it points people to who our God is. What do we ultimately believe about the world? So the first part of Paul's triangle of evangelism is suffer, suffering well. The second part is living well. <clears throat> what I mean by living well is not like developing good habits so you could live a long, good, healthy life, although that's in in incredibly important as well. What I mean by living well is living in an ethical sense, living in an ethical or moral sense, how you live your life, how you behave. 
Paul the Apostle in 1 Thessalonians 2.9 says this, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The key phrase here is walk worthy. Walk in a manner worthy of God. I've mentioned this before, so we won't break it down, but the idea of walking worthy is an old Jewish thought. And even today, in, in, if, you're, if you know any religious Jews today, they have the halakha, and that is the walk. But it's the way you walk in light of God's teachings, in light of the sum total of God's commands. So it's saying living in a way where your behavior reflects your king. So Paul would say, how you live, how you behave, how you act in the ethical or moral sense matters. Now, uh, look at this claim that Paul actually gets, gets to do in the same line of thought. To the Thessalonians says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. As they're proclaiming the gospel of God, he says, you are my witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Now, in one sense, that could kind of sound arrogant, but Paul is, is just telling it so much how it is, no one's gonna disagree. I mean, how many of us could say, hey, you know how I live. It's holy and blameless. You know, could, like, if people were writing about how you act at work or with family, would they be like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm holy and blameless before you. You know, you know I haven't done anything wrong before you. I mean, some of us, we, we don't even get past our spouse being able to say that. You stop right there. For some hey, babe, you know how holy, nah, stop. <laughs> nah. Now, this is an important note. There is a thought and a sentiment that has creeped in, especially to American Christianity, that is difficult to articulate, but it, it, incredibly important. Whenever you start talking about behavior, behavior and how Christians are called to behave differently, Christians are called to act ethically and morally different than other people. The second you start, like, there's a Christian and he's doing something and you're like, dude, you can't do that. Like, that's wrong. You claim to be a Christian, you're doing X, Y, Z, you can't do that. Now, if you've been a Christian, like, for decades, you, you're, this is going to make more sense. And if you're just new to Christianity, this will be harder to understand. But the second you start talking about how Christians should behave and demanding ethical behavior, someone goes, hey, that sure sounds like legalism creeping in here. You guys know, you, for you long-term Christians, you know what I'm talking about. And there's this sense of, like, you know, don't let legalism in here. Let, Legalism, defined by the Bible, is external religious deeds and works that are used to justify yourself before God. Meaning, I think by my good works, I can justify myself before God. And usually they have like an external religious kind of sign. In the New Testament, there were circumcision and observance of special Sabbaths. Legalism is works and external religious actions done to justify you before God, and that is wrong. It's a huge emphasis. You are saved by grace, not of your works. Why did God show you grace? Not because you were special or unique, but because he's gracious and he loves you. However, 
However, and a big however, and this distinction is important. Yes, you are saved by grace, not of works. But the Bible demands all over the place that you behave differently. And telling people that they need to behave differently and act more ethically or morally is not legalism. The Bible has a word for this. It's called holiness. It's called holiness. And it's on every page of your New Testament. It's called holiness. And some of you have been Christians for a long time. You could, you, you've observed this. 30, 40, or 50 years ago, churches talked about holiness. Do you hear a lot of talk about holiness in churches today? For those of you who've been Christians a long time. No, it used to be commonplace. It used to be like, yeah, Christians were called to be holy. And so what I mean by that is we live differently. Our behavior and ethics should reflect our king. doesn't mean you're perfect or like, I'm holy and I'm holier than thou. In fact, that's the opposite. Paul's holiness is broadcasted in his humility. Jesus' holiness was demonstrated in his servanthood. But the American church like, doesn't want to behave in a way that reflects the gospel. And the second you confront anybody, it's like, don't be judgmental. I, I'm, I'm afraid of legalism. Jesus said, and these are not my words, Jesus says, you'll know you love me when you obey my commands. If a tree does not bear fruit, it's dead and should be chopped down. So you're saved by grace, but when you grab a hold of grace, or rather grace grabs a hold of you, you begin to live differently. Not because you have to to earn God's favor, but because you love him, and it changes who you are. So the question for you is, are you behaving differently than people who don't know about your Jesus? Does your internet browsing history look different than people who don't care about Jesus? Does your Netflix history, does your giving, does your pocketbook, does your receipts, your generosity look differently than people who do not know your Jesus. And, and if you can't, there's, if it doesn't look any different, there, there's, a, there's a big problem there. Some of you became Christians not because someone had like a brilliant kind of articulation of the gospel and you gave them all your intellectual doubts and they kept like disarming them. Well, no, no, uh, there's this answer and there's this answer. Some of you became Christians because someone actually just lived differently and you were like, what do you have? Like, how are you this generous, kind, gracious? Like, they earned the right to speak into your life by the way they lived. Some of you are here today because people's holiness drew you to them, and then they were able to tell you about Jesus. Do you live differently in this world? And so the second part of this triangle is is living well. The first part is learning to suffer well. The second part is learning to live well. And the last part of Paul's evangelism tactic in the book of 1 Thessalonians is thinking well. The greatest command is to love God with all of your heart, strength. It kind of gets confusing because in the Old Testament, sometimes it's translated one way in the New Testament. So sometimes you're like heart, strength, mind, 
mind, strength, heart, mind, heart, and it's, it gets confusing. But the point is this. Oftentimes people try to like differentiate, okay, what does it mean to love God with my heart and what does it mean to love him with my strength? The point of that passage is saying you should love God with the sum total of your being. Every part of you should love God. One of the most neglected parts in modern Christianity of that command to love God with all of your being is loving God with our minds. The intellectual life has been abandoned. In fact, there's some, there's some Christian circles where there's like a sense of anti-intellectualism. Like I've heard people say, I don't want to learn more about history or science or the Bible because then, then it'll take away um, my need to rely on faith. And, and it's just like, it's like, what? How does this anti-intellectualism come into the church? The, in the first few hundreds of Christian, first hundred years of Christianity, some of the most brilliant rebuttals to the pagan thought of the time was being written by Christians clearly articulated, not only just a little bit about their scriptures, but about philosophy and the opposing people's viewpoints and showing how they're inconsistent within themselves. And this is difficult because we're all at different levels. Some of us really like the life of the mind. Like, if, you, you know, you'd show up to like theology club. So this one's easier for us to do. And some of us are going to be more gifted. at. It. I'm not saying everyone needs to become a master theologian and thinker, but wherever we're at in life, we're called God to love, we're called to love God with our mind. Develop the life of the mind and the intellectual life. And for some people, that may mean you're an intellectual theological giant. And for some of you, that just may mean taking a couple, couple steps up here. But it's a command in Scripture, and it's essential to Paul's way of evangelism. In Acts 17, when Paul first comes to Thessalonica, this is what is recorded. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now the emphasis here is, um, Paul went, as was his custom, to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them. Paul knew his Bible, and he knew the framework and the theology of it, and he would begin to reason with people who didn't believe in Jesus. And he doesn't only do this with Jews in the synagogue. In the book of Acts, you see him doing it with philosophers in the Gentile world, in the Roman world. For Paul, the gospel was a robust enough belief system that it could withstand the rigorous testing of any opposing philosophical system. And he engaged in it. He wasn't afraid of it. Now, there's a master in the Bible who's like the best at thinking well on his feet. When, when people try to, to confuse him with a philosophical or theological argument and kind of get him in a trap like he's the master. And he's also, by the way, like the master of everything. It's Jesus. Um, but when you see scripture, Jesus will try to be, they'll set up intellectual traps for him. And Jesus not only knows the scriptures and, and his belief, but he knows 
the opposing people's beliefs. He knows what the culture thinks. He knows the worldview of the day, and he's able to engage with it and articulate gospel truth in the midst of that. Here's one of my favorite, if not my favorite example. Um, This is where Jesus is confronted by a group of people called the Sadducees. Now, in the first century Jewish world, there's about four or five, maybe six kind of major political groups political religious groups. Those two things aren't separated in the first century world. They're, they're, they're bound together. But you had the Pharisees, who we know a lot about because they appear a lot in the Bible. And the Pharisees, um, they believe in the same Old Testament that we have in our English Bibles, but they also have something called the oral tradition. And the oral tradition is later kind of codified in something called the Mishnah in the second century. But the point is, they have our Old Testament and kind of the oral teachings of rabbis to go along with. They believe in angels and demons, and they believe in resurrection of the dead, a lot like the first Christians and us today. Then there's a group of people called the Zealots, and they basically are like, God wants us to kill the Romans and overthrow Rome and establish our own Jewish state, but we're going to do it by the sword. There's the Essenes. Essenes are kind of weird, all dudes. No women are allowed. They live out in the desert all by themselves, and they're like obsessed with purity and ceremonial ritual. Um, so they're, uh, they, they, they bathe a lot. They, they kind of are obsessed with cleansiness. They, they're super legalistic in the sense that they believe religious acts and behavior can ultimately justify them before God. They're so strict, they don't allow you to go to the bathroom on the Sabbath. It's true. It's considered work. Rightfully so. <laughs> and then you have the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, oftentimes in, in kind of teaching, they're, they're, they're talked about like as if they're like the, the ultra-liberals of the day. The Sadducees are not the ultra-liberals of the day. They're like the super, super hardcore OG conservatives of the day. They only believe in the first five books of our Bible, the Torah, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Anything else doesn't count. If it's not in, they say, if you can't show me a scripture that backs up your belief and it doesn't appear in the law of Moses, then we don't believe it. So they didn't believe in the afterlife, they didn't believe in angels and demons, they didn't believe in the resurrection. If it's not in the book of Moses, we don't believe it. That's it. And they come to trap Jesus with a question. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they asked him, saying, teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now when there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Verse 26, so too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, quick clarifying thing. There's something in Jewish culture and in most cultures from this time period in the ancient Near East that said if a man and woman are married and if the the husband dies before they have kids, it's the moral duty of one of the other brothers to come and marry that woman, to take care of her, have children with her so the name of the family could continue on. Super weird sounding to us, but it was actually seen as a good thing back in Jewish culture and tons of cultures. Because if a woman died without having older sons, 
she'd most likely be left to, to beg or to, to have to prostitute herself in order to survive. And so it was a way to secure kind of the family. Super weird. I'm not encouraging it in, in any way. I'll say, this is what I learned at church today. So they, they set up this situation. They go, Jesus, there's this woman who, whose husband died, and then her brother marries her. But then that brother dies, and then the other brother marries her, and then that brother dies, and then the other goes down the line seven times. Now, it's a, it's a trick question because it's a hypothetical question that's not real. How do you know it's not real? Because like by the fourth or fifth brother, one of those dudes is going to be like, uh-uh, uh-uh. I mean, this woman's been killing all my family members one by one. She's been poisoning the Passover lamb every year. I'm not doing this. No. So it is a hypothetical question with a hypothetical belief system and structure that they don't even believe in. Why? They don't even believe in the resurrection. So this question doesn't matter to the Sadducees. They don't even believe in this but they're trying to to trick him. Their point is to trick Jesus, not to get an answer to their question. But Jesus is so good, he's not only gonna not be tricked, he's gonna answer their question in a way that is, is just remarkable. Okay, so first, this is how Jesus responds. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, which is We should just stop right there. That's awesome. That is awesome. Verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So, first off, that line, so good. You are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. I just want to be able to tell someone that. I was like, like someone come up after church and act like, I'm going to ask you a question. I just want to be able to say you're wrong. And then tell, no, what I'll do is, is that Janine in the back? Yeah. I'll just go over to the kids' church and say, hey, we're going to play a quick game of Bible trivia. Um, and then ask a really hard question. And some kid will think, they know, raise his hand. I just want to look at that kid. You were wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. This phrase, power of God, appears a lot in the literature from this time period, and it appears most often in Jewish prayers from this time period. And when it appears, most of the time that it does appear, when the power of God is discussed, it's linked with the resurrection. And the reason for this is, for for the Jews who believed in the resurrection, the clearest way God could demonstrate his power was in bringing someone back from the dead by resurrection. And so these prayers were super, super common, talking about the power of God being displayed in resurrection. So Jesus takes a phrase that in that culture is associated with the resurrection. And more importantly than that, the people who did believe in the resurrection, they thought it would all occur at one time for all people. The twist of Christianity is that it didn't happen for all people at one time. It happens to one human being as the representative. So when Jesus rises from the dead, every prayer that's been prayed is then pointing to this is the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus. So there's a hint that starts there, but then he goes on and he quotes a section of scripture. Verse 32, Jesus quotes, 
I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, question. He's quoting a text. Anyone know where that verse is from? Now, if you get it wrong, you know what I'm going to (laughs) say. Anyone want to try? So, it's from Exodus. It's from Exodus. And what's extremely significant is that's from Exodus in the burning bush incident where God himself is revealing his name and character to the Jewish people. You remember the burning bush. And in that instant, God says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. And he says this in the present sense. There's a present tense nature to this. He is God in the burning bush saying, I am currently the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, why is quoting the book of Exodus important? That's a book they believe. Have you ever seen Christians try to articulate something and they're arguing in circles? Because they are pretending as if the opposing group has the same presuppositions as them. So someone says, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. And you go, well, in the Bible it says Jesus rose from the dead. I don't believe the Bible. Well, in the book of Romans chapter 2, it says this. It's like, I, so you see what I'm saying? And the speaking Bible verse is powerful. I'm not knocking it. God, God uses stuff. But you are using arguments based upon your belief and presuppositions that aren't shared by the opponent. And so Jesus quotes a book that they accept as word of God to them. And more importantly, it's a special part of that book, right? This isn't just like some random, this isn't just Noah saying build an ark. This is God in the burning bush speaking. And when God speaks in the burning bush in the book that's accepted as word of God to the Sadducees, what book is the quote referring to? Where do you hear about the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The book of, you know neither the power of God. Genesis. (laughs) And are the people in the book of Genesis alive in the time of the book of Exodus? No, they're dead. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's quoting from a book they accept, Exodus, and he's quoting God in the burning bush. And he's quoting a time in Exodus when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are clearly dead, but he's quoting God saying, in some sense, even though they're dead, they don't have a body, in some sense, I am still their God. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, I am currently their God. So even though they're dead physically, in some sense, they are going on and they are alive. And then Jesus says, well, do you know why? Because he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you you see what Jesus did there. He sneaks in behind them and into their worldview, into their belief system, into their thoughts about the world and reality, he sneaks in and uses their own presuppositions, their own belief systems, and he sneaks in and shows how it doesn't even make sense inside of it, and it comes undone. And he's not only tricked, he shows them to be an heir, and also simultaneously is speaking to the power of the resurrection of himself, which they would later see. I mean, that's awesome. Now, how do I know all of that's going on and I'm just not like making this argument to be way cooler than it is? Look at how the crowds respond. 
And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. It's just like, if this was modern day and Jesus was like, in, like giving a talk someplace, just drop the mic, walk off stage. <laughs> drop the mic. And some of you aren't going to know what I'm talking about. Some of you will. But on the internet, some, you know, some of you have watched hours of, of Thug Life videos. This is a, a Thug Life video moment. Thug Life videos are like, uh, uh, really quickly, it's like two people are debating something, and then someone makes it, it appears like a really good strong argument that's going to defeat the opponent, and then the other guy just totally debunks the other person, and then on YouTube what happens is like some cheap CGI comes in, and like sunglasses go over the guy's face, and like a hat, and then like gangster music plays in the background, and it's supposed to be like, dude, you just, you just got dropped. It's like, it's like the Rocky Balboa knockout punch. It's, that's what happens, like Jesus drops the mic and walks off. Sadducees, come on, man. Come on. And the crowds are amazed. In this understanding of evangelism, Paul is outlining for us that you can have an effective witness, your life can be an effective testimony to the person and work of Jesus when you learn to suffer well, live well, and think well. And so my challenge for us as we, as we wrap things up is which one of those three components may you need, which one might you need to grow in? Now, some of you aren't in a, in a stage of suffering, so that one's easy. It doesn't apply to you. Some of you are suffering, and we pray for that suffering to cease, but we also pray as Christians, God, use every part of me to glorify you. In whatever loss, whatever pain, whatever I'm going through right now, Lord, I, I, I want it to be used for, for, for your kingdom. So take my pain and make it matter. Take my pain and give it meaning. It's horrible to suffer without meaning. But when your pain and suffering has purpose, it changes things. It doesn't make it go away, but it changes things. And if you are a Christian in this room, let me tell you definitively right now, God is not wasting your pain. You can use it. For those of you who are not in a moment like that, and we pray that that doesn't happen to anybody, um, are you living well? Does your behavior speak of who you belong to? Do you live differently? Like, do people even know? Like, could people tell if you never talked about Jesus, would they still say, like, something's different about that dude? What's different about that woman? Could, could they tell? Or do you just look like everyone else? And then lastly, Maybe some of you need to be challenged to, to love God with your mind. Again, that comes easier for some than others, and some of you are going to love it. We all have different types of brains. Some of our brains are inclined to the arts. Some of us are inclined to Sudoku. I don't know why. I don't know why. It makes no sense. Um, and some of you are going like, how could you not love that? No matter where you're at, you're called to do it. And we all need to grow in this area. And this is why it's so important is because 50 years ago, um, if you were to poll Americans, 97, 98% would say they're Christian. Like, no one would, no one would, would doubt that. Like, even if they weren't Christian, because clearly 50 years ago, not everyone was Christian. Not everyone was Christian. But everyone kind of on an intellectual level believed that Christianity was true. So, so when people were polled, like you can go up to someone and he, he's a horrible person, never goes to church, makes fun of church, he kicks puppies, and makes fun of little kids. If you were to poll him, like as a statistician, and say, what religion do you affiliate with? He would say Christian. 
like 97, 98% of people just assumed they were Christian decades ago in this cultural context. They weren't, but just in, 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 there was religious residue in the culture. And, you know, trying to convince someone they need to become a Christian, they weren't like intellectually necessarily opposed to Jesus. They just thought church was lame. I'm never going to go to church. Uh, I'll clean up my act in a decade, man. Well, I accepted Jesus a long time ago. I said a prayer. So they might have not been living it, but on a worldview level, they, they thought Christianity was true. That has fundamentally changed. And so now in our culture, you don't have 97% of people assuming Christianity is true in some sense of the word. In fact, it's growing more and more but every day to be oppositional. I mean, still, most Americans identify as Christians, but there's a growing portion of people who think you're crazy. I mean, the times have changed. There's a big portion of society, and it's only increasing. And if you are a Christian, they think you are stupid, irrational, bigoted, backward, sexist, etc., etc., etc. Add to the list. And there's no way you're going to be able to have a faithful Christian witness in that type of culture unless we learn to imitate Paul and the first Christians. Because they lived in the exact same environment, but it was worse. And they suffered well. They lived well. And they were able to think well. And when you do all three of those things, you begin to have a more powerful witness to Jesus. So what, is, what area do you need to grow in? What can you be challenged in? And just the, the last thought, because I don't want people to be confused. Um, you can be horrible at thinking, horrible at living your life, and horrible at suffering, but there's, there's always a factor you have in your side that, that you have to be aware of. And, and, it's, and it's Jesus. And what I mean by that is, even if you fail at everything, if you faithfully try to show people the love of Christ, things will happen. Things just happen. There are some of you who, again, where someone told you the gospel in a very clunky way and that you look back on it, it sounds like bad theology, the way someone explained Christianity to you. But somehow in that moment when they're telling you about Jesus, it didn't even really make a lot of sense and looking back, it sounded like bad theology. But in that moment, you felt the, uh, the presence of God beginning to, 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 to fix something in your heart, to, to make you clean, to give you love for people like you've never had. And so know that even if you fail at all these things, Jesus is always the wild card. He just does things sometimes. And some of you, you were led to, to Jesus by someone who had great responses to all of your questions. And some of you were led to people they had like, didn't make any sense, but they prayed over you and God showed up. Grow in each one of these areas and know that at the end of the day, Christ is still central and he's calling upon all men and all women at all times and all places to come to him and freely receive his grace and his mercy. Pick a component of the triangle, put your faith in Jesus, and things begin to happen. Greg's gonna come up and close for us um, because if they do have video footage of this service, I want the person doing the, the formal things to be Greg. Why don't, we, why don't we stand together? Um, 
as we close, I'd like to ask the prayer team to come, and any elders here too, and I know we're psychologically starting to shut off, we're thinking about lunch and everything, but if I could just beg two or three minutes uh, to focus, because this is important. Um, two things that I, that I took out of Isaac's message today, uh, one is, is that uh, Jesus calls us to be followers of him.